It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. My guest is Brad Sherwood, who, along with Colin Mockery, will be performing in Scared Scriptless. That's, I don't want to say that three times real fast. At the Pavilion Theater at Tropicana Laughlin this Saturday, June 25th. For ticket information, go to TropicanaLaughlin.com and for everything about Scared Scriptless, go to ColinAndBradShow.com. And you can follow Brad on Twitter and Instagram at the Brad Sherwood. And Brad, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. I hope you don't mind. I've scripted the entire interview. Oh, good. I've scripted all of my answers. Oh, excellent. <laughs> even, even though I didn't know what you were going to ask me. So when my answer has nothing to do with your question, right. that's why. I can fix it all in post-production. It's not a problem. Excellent. Yes. So of all your biography, the one that's stuck in my head, because I've got to bring it out, you hosted the dating game from 1996 to 1997. That is true. Uh, yeah, they decided to bring back the dating game and the newlywed game. So I ended up doing it, and it was fun. It was a whole, we did a whole season. We did like 130 episodes, and uh, they loved it. But I th- we sort of found out the guy who was also doing the newlywed game, he and I did one season, and then they replaced us with Bob Eubanks and Chuck Woolery. So that we were really just the test pilots trying out the airplane. You know, there's no coincidence. I, I realized that I was literally a, a lab rat uh, hired to bring it uh, to fruition. And then they were like, okay, let's get back the guys that uh, we associate with this show. That's funny. Because, yes, they, they were both part of it for a long time. A little known fact, I don't share it that often, but I was a guest on the original dating game for, I believe, a record seven times. Yes. Wow. And so, yes, I got a couple of nice trips out of it, a couple of nice products, and I always got paid after scale. So that was the main reason I did it at the time. Did you have to change your name each time? I kept the name. It's not my name that I, my current name, which is my original name. I used a different name. I kept that, but my my occupation kept changing. And Uh they would bring me back about every four months. But I've got all kinds of uh, slacks. What, what was that San Francisco treat? The uh, rice aroni. Rice aroni. I had a whole carton yeah. of rice aroni, but I went to Tahiti and other places. So, a little known Excellent. fact. There we go. You got started in improv. You attended a comedy class, right? And then that, from there, is that how it all blossomed? I mean, I, it, it sort of, I always liked being funny as a kid. I moved around a lot. So, this was my sort of social mechanism to get people to like me. So I was always a funny person. And I wasn't like just telling jokes. I was just saying funny things when I was in social situations with people based on what was going on. So my mind was already thinking like an improviser. And uh, I was in a sketch comedy group in college, and we went to see a three-man improv group called the Sam Glick Players that were playing somewhere near our college. And I thought, oh, this is so cool. And it just always stuck with me how amazing that show was, because I'd never seen an improv show. And then when I moved out to LA to try and make my way as an actor, a friend of mine I was working with in TV production said, you should come check out this improv workshop that I'm taking. So I went and uh, took that and it was like the heavens open. And this was what I was meant to be doing. I took to it immediately. It was, you know, it was like 
second nature for me and did shows with them at the Laugh Factory. And then I got involved with another group called Theater Sports and did that for 10 years and then did Second City out in Los Angeles and was in the touring company. And I was the understudy for Ryan Stiles in the touring company and uh, just kind of kept going from there and then eventually got on Whose Line through Ryan. He said the producers were coming and uh, they're looking for new people for Whose Line. And I got on and I've been doing it ever since. It seems almost your entire adult life has been spent on Whose Line, is it? Yeah, it kind of does. I think I started, uh, was it uh, 89 maybe? I think it's when I first got on. I think the date I have is 92, but that may not be correct. No, 92 is probably correct. That was with the British Uh, version, and then you went to the American version. Yeah, I I did three seasons of the British version, did all the seasons of the Drew Carey ABC version, and uh, pretty much all the seasons of the CW as well. So, yeah, we actually just celebrated our, uh, not just, but a couple years ago, we all went to London for a big 30-year anniversary Amazing. which was celebrating how long the show from the British version on through because the producers stayed the same. So they've been with the show the whole way as, as well as many of us sort of grizzled veterans. And so we, <laughs> and we, we, and we got to perform, we had done a few live uh, weekends in London in the past, but for the big 30th anniversary, we got to perform three shows at a stinky little joint called the Royal Albert Hall. Oh, you're so, being funny there. Yeah, I, I think you're being ironic. Yeah, it's that, not that, that stinky. A, uh, it's a little hall, but it's not stinky. I mean, it's I, it's it was I a read. true highlight of my life to play in a venue that the Beatles played at. So it doesn't get much better than that. Well, so. it would if you played before the Queen. Yes, apparently uh, she prefers Wild and Out on MTV <laughs> uh, when she chooses her improv. <laughs> I want to reverse the question now. And I'm glad you gave us the insight as to how you got into improv and how you got into comedy being at an early age and and realizing this was a skill you had and a way to feel comfortable with people and to get people to respond to you. The reverse is, why do you think improv appeals to people when they watch it? When you and Colin go on stage, what is it about the process? Some people refer to it as magic because it's not scripted, and that may very well be part of it, but is there a larger sociological aspect to this that I don't see or do see, but I'm not able to form in my head. I think you touched on it when you said magic. It's like a comedy show and a magic act all in once. And they are seeing the moment of discovery. So not only are you saying something funny, but they are seeing you come up with it in the moment, in this weird situation that we've all created together based on their suggestion. And uh, there's something, I think it appeals to the sense of humor in the child part of everyone's brain. Because it's kind of like they're watching us play, literally we play, you know, let's, we're uh, killing a dragon and we're having a snowball fight or whatever we're doing. And it's, so they get to see that moment. This isn't something we wrote out and brought to them that we polished to a fine gloss. It's, we're flying by the seat of their, our pants. So they have this set of nerves because they're, they're worried of how it's going to turn out and they're thrilled by what we come up with. So it, it's kind of a... It, it's different than any relationship an audience has with a live performer. You know, they go to see a concert. These people are playing songs they played backwards and forwards for 30 to 40 years of their lives. They're seeing us take our sort of ninja superpower of, of transforming an idea into something funny right on the spot. So that it's, it's that moment of creation that makes it exciting. It makes it seem magical. And what we're doing is really goofy. 
you know, it's, it's tends to be not political at all. We're just, you know, what happens when two plumbers are attacked by hamsters during a hurricane? <laughs> you know, I mean, everybody goes, well, that won't work. And then we go, well, I beg to differ, yes. you know, and, and, and that's what's funny. They're going to see an event. And, and we say that at the top of our show. This show is completely made up every single time. The, you'll, this show will never be seen again. This is custom made for you. It's a once in a lifetime moment that we are all going to share here tonight. And it also helps because we have people that come back to see our show five, six, seven, eight, nine times, 10, uh, anytime we come to their town, because they know even if we're playing the same sound effects game, the whole content of the show, 98.9% of the show is completely different content every single time. So you do percentages on your show too. We do. Yes. Yeah. That's great. We, 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 we feel bad if we dip below 97%. Understood. Uh, <laughs> I think there's another element you alluded to it is that the audience has a sympathy for you. They're on pins and needles, hoping that you will not fall on your face. And so when you do come up with funny stuff, they're going to react in a very genuine way because it's funny and it's in the moment, as you said, the magic, and you haven't fallen on your face. And we've established a relationship with them. We're saying, come with us on this journey. You're going to help build the campsite. You know, I mean, so it's like, what are we going to do? And I think they have, they take ownership of the show in a way that you don't take ownership when you see a stand up. This person has this finely crafted 60 minute monologue that he's made almost bulletproof that he's going to now recite for you. And so they're, people go to see stand-ups it's almost a little more adversarial even if it's someone they like they kind of go in and cross their arms and go okay funny boy let's go and with us they're like oh my god what's gonna happen what 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 no oh god you know so it's kind of a almost an intellectual roller coaster that they're on uh with us and so it, it just i think it elicits different parts of the brain to respond like i said in a childlike way to an improv show and this is no easy task in that Improv shows live and die by any human being's previous experience. If you go see a young up-and-coming improv group at a club or a cafe for the first time you see improv and they're not good, you probably will never seek out another improv show. If you go to see a bad stand-up, you're not thinking, oh, stand-up sucks and I'm never going back to see a stand-up in a comedy club. So, you know, it, we literally, it's trial by fire for a lot of people. And luckily, sort of, whose line at least ushered in an awareness of, and a fairly consistent, strong product that people will at least come to see us. And it's so, better that they come see you, you and Colin as opposed to somebody else so they get a favorable impression of improv. And then in the future, yeah. if they come across a bad improv person, hey, they still remember Brad and Colin. Yeah, I think once people have had an experience watching Who's Line the Show or our live show, right. yes, they know that, you know, sometimes they're going to see the Harlem Globetrotters and sometimes they're going to see the Washington Generals, you know, so. <laughs> I think it's almost watching what you and Colin do on stage is a comedic version of the Flying Walindas. Mm-hmm. So it is. It's a bit of a circus act. It, yes. It's a higher wire. It's yes. an intellectual tightrope act. Absolutely. Have you had those occasions? I'm sure they're rare, but they must have happened in all these years where something just fell flat and you have to psychologically move on and go to the next game or the next scene so that you that, don't get mired in that thing that fell on its face. 
That happens a lot to Colin. It has yet to happen to me. Uh, so, but I assume it's really painful when your jokes don't work. I won't uh, tell him I, you said that. No, I, I, yeah, I'll send him. We're, we're constantly digging on each other all the time. Uh, but you know, we 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 are so. The, the good thing is, like, anytime you're in a as an improviser who's really experienced, when someone is throwing something at you, your brain is working super fast, and you have like probably five options to go with in your brain as you're thinking of what, what would be the funniest thing to say? Your microprocessor is working at full speed. And it's like, sometimes you answer them specifically, give them the information. Sometimes you say something sort of the opposite. Sometimes you go off into some weird realm. So when you have two guys working at the top of their game, each with at minimum of five ideas at any given moment, you feel pretty safe that the two of you are going to come up with a great direction and reaction to every direction. Because every, every time he says something, it's like a dry erase board. I have to go, now what? And then when we make someone laugh, they laugh, but there's not a scripted show that's going to carry them on in something guaranteed to be funny. So it's now what? Every single time one of us speaks, it starts over. So, but we're used to living in that space. So we very rarely have something that's just like, oh my God, that was horrible. In a corporate shows, maybe. Uh, a little more distracted and there's a lot more booze involved and they're oh yeah uh, yeah they're uptight because they're there to golf yeah and their uh, bosses are watching so yes all that stuff yeah but uh our show is pretty fluid and adaptable and you know we also make we comment and make fun of something that is a mistake and if some, you know if something you expected to be a punchline didn't get a laugh the guy who's now responding to that one of the two of us is going to make that awkward silence into a laugh. So it's, it, you know, I think we don't even worry. We, we're just always excited to go on stage. Uh, we don't have nerves. We just have focused adrenaline for being in front of an audience. I basically. assume that you both stay away, at least prior to the performance. Maybe afterwards you're fine with it, but you don't want to have any alcohol or any, anything that would dull the senses or heighten I, too much. I never have even a beer before a show i like to literally be at the top of my game colin sometimes likes a glass of red wine and i think i think that's from the anxiety of him knowing that i'm going to be so much funnier than him that he needs to just calm himself i understand it you know now now don't tell colin this but i i think of you and colin as a picture of dorian gray you never age and he gets older yeah, well, I, you know, I, uh, I sold my soul to the devil so long ago. I know, I, I, saw, like, I saw the report, yeah. Uh, yeah, I feel like I look pretty darn good for 57. <laughs> you look uh, very good, but, yes. <laughs> but Colin has looked 70 since he was 29. Exactly. So, I mean, he is technically holding his age well. Yes. Since yes. he's looked like this forever. <laughs> Do you two, because of the age difference, have different sensibilities, and that's how you complement each other, or... Do you think you have the same sensibilities and that allows you to complement each other? We have so much in common. And I will say the age difference isn't that much. It's only maybe six years. So it's, you know, we wouldn't have seen each other in high school, but it's not like generational in any sense. Right. But we have a lot in common just as people. We're both left-handed, both Sagittariuses. Uh, we both love spicy food. Oddly, when we were kids, we both wanted to be marine biologists. And we've both always had a sort of a very curious nature. We like puzzles and, and facts and movies and music and uh, even Broadway. He's, he is an encyclopedia of Broadway musical knowledge. It's pretty impressive. Uh, so 
both of us being this sort of curious type. And I think we were both a little bit of a loner when we were kids. So we had a very rich in, interior brain fantasy world from which we draw. So and, even though uh, you, you said earlier you used humor to ease the social situation, it still becomes a, a situation where you're a loner, as Colin was as well, in the early yeah. stages. Well, for me, we moved around a lot. So it wasn't until my junior year in high school that I was ever in a school for three years and had the same people as friends that I knew for a third year in, in my life. So that creates a bit of a, I'm an island because you have friends and then you leave and now you're the new kid on the block again in a whole new situation. And you're, you are the new friend with people that have known each other since kindergarten, right. you know? So th th that's a hard thing to penetrate fully and become like, I'm your best friend. Uh, yeah. So, but you could use humor to ease the situation a little bit, though. Well, that's why sure I used humor. Yes. It was, it was, it was my way into the friendship club. I had to have a, a bargaining chip that made people like to be around me because I was literally, you know, the bottom of the totem pole in any click that I was in. I guess likability is important not only in your your younger years, but even on stage. That likability factor, it would seem, works for you and Colin. That audiences that come to see you like you before you even start the performance. That, that's very true, especially with Colin. Colin is universally beloved. Like He's like Tim Conway. Just everybody loves him. Why do you um, think that is, though, Brad? Is he paying off people? God, it seems like the, having keep track of the finances to do that would be so <laughs> difficult. Maybe he is paying people off. Uh, no, I just think he's just got a, a, a personality and a look and sort of comes on stage and you sort of think, what's he going to do? And he just does things so random and goofy that he just, just uh, people become enamored with him. I have to work harder. I say, you know, he can just give a look and the whole crowd goes, I have to do a you know, perfectly crafted Eminem rap, you know, <laughs> full of, you know, everything I say is like this woven tapestry of look how smart I am. And he's just like, is that a gerbil? You know, and bah! so, and I am saying that truly uh, in awe of the, his ability to do that. And, and you know, compelling jealousy. That, uh, <laughs> what a combination. That, that he, can, he can run such a wide spectrum of things to make them laugh. And I have to really like make a Fabergé egg of a punchline for them. <laughs> he has this elf-like quality, which I think endears him to audiences, where you have the likability factor, but it's more of an everyman likability. Yeah. I don't mean to yeah. say you're mundane or average at all, Brad. I'm not saying that. Oh, I'm, I'm wholly unremarkable. No, I agree. Oh, okay. As long as you agree yeah, with me, yeah. then I'm okay no, with yeah. saying I, it. Yes. You, know, you don't have to cloak this as almost a compliment. <laughs> I'm used to being unrecognized. I look like everybody's cousin. I'm just a big, tall, white guy. <laughs> when you first met Colin, did the two of you click? Yeah. Do, yeah you, I, immediately, we, we met, you remember it? Yeah, we met at a, a, at a rehearsal in London for my, or no, in New York for, uh, to run over some games for my first time. Actually, yeah, that's the first time I really got to meet. I met him one other time with his wife and his newborn daughter, but we were running games for Who's Line. Uh, we were, the British version was shooting a season in New York and it was my first time on the show. But, uh, you know, I thought he was super funny and he's a great improviser, so anybody can work with him. And uh, yeah, and since then, We've just done thousands of shows together between our two-man shows and the, we used to perform with the group 
uh, and Drew in Vegas every Super Bowl weekend for years during the heyday of Who's Line on ABC. And then we would also go on tour with a bunch of, it was me and Ryan and Colin and Greg and Chip and Jeff sort of had the, the, the big Rat Pack tour that we did for years through you know, North America. How did it become a situation where you paired off the two of you as opposed to other members of the group? How did that, well, we how were, did that work? We were doing the 10-man the show once, you know, a couple times a year and Super Bowl weekend. And when you're in a 10-person show, there's eight stools on the back line of the, of the stage. So when two people are up, generally you have six to seven people sitting, waiting for their turn. And so there's a lot of bench time in yes. a big cavalcade show. <laughs> and we're both stage hogs. And we, we wanted to, you know, we wanted to do more shows than just kind of what Drew felt like doing. You know, Drew was like, hey, let's go gamble on the Super Bowl. And uh, we can also do a, a show. And so we just said, you know, I had actually been doing a two-man show with a friend of mine named Dave Bushnell for a couple of years in comedy clubs. And I said, I have a formula for a two-person show. Would you like to try and give it a go? And this was, this was, God, this was 2001, maybe, when we started this. And we tried it and we loved it. And it's grown and expanded and become more and more the show we really want to do through trial and error. And uh, we've been doing it ever since. I call it my full-time, part-time job. <laughs> is this your first time in Laughlin performing? It is. Yeah. But we've done Reno and Tahoe and we've done so many corporates in Vegas. And we did a weekend at the Westgate when Barry Manilow was somewhere for Thanksgiving. And we've played a couple weekends at the Rio in the past. And, you know, plus with the Vegas shows, we've pretty much played every major casino at some point but we've never been to Laughlin. It's amazing to me that what you do and what Colin does is something that's not typically the type of entertainment you would see in Las Vegas, in Reno, in Laughlin, etc. It's a very unique form of comedy, and the audiences that come to these are generally tourists as opposed to locals. So you're appealing to a wide variety of people did you make that connection early on that you appealed to this wide variety of people? Well, yeah, because when Whose Line was first sort of launched onto ABC and the United States became fully aware of Whose Line and improv in general, we were not only aware because it was super popular, but as in a, any type of performance, comedy or otherwise, we have probably the widest demographic of any kind of show because kids love us. You know, kids six to eight are laughing at us, goofy, even though they may not understand everything. Parents, college kids, and grandparents watch it. So there are very few comedy, like think of a stand-up that's going to appeal to an eight-year-old and to an 80-year-old. None. They, there's none that exist. Most stand-ups are either like college-age, snarky, you know, 17 to 30, and then there's the, you know, the older generation comics. And so... I think we benefited from having such a wide dynamic. It's a comedy show that people watch with their kids, you know, and their grandparents. And so that's great. There's not many shows of any sort that have such a wide Game of Thrones. Little kids aren't getting to watch Game of Thrones. Right. And, and parents aren't watching Barney the Dinosaur. Right. So, exactly. <laughs> you know, like we're in a very select group of shows that are that up cross generational. 
Except for some afternoon magic shows, you're right. I don't think of that many shows yes. that can appeal to that wide range. I, yeah. I hate to bring you back to percentages, but it is part of your act. And so the question is, what percentage of the performance that, and you've had enough time on stage to get a sense of it, is visual versus pattern? Well, I mean, we're doing scenes, so we are filling the space and, and you know, we're not actually holding fire hose in our hand if we're in a scene, a sound effect scene as firemen, but certainly our facial stuff, what we are saying is definitely, it's a, it's, it is a verbal art form, but it's performed theatrically as actors would. So, you know, without costumes. So uh, in that sense, the staging of it is like a Broadway drama and the mental gymnastics and the music and songs that we do is, you know, like a big comedy Broadway musical. And even though each show is unique and original, do you record them for yourselves just to have? Nope. They're gone we in don't. the ether. Once yeah. they're done, yeah. they're done. Yeah. We, we, we've actually done a couple of comedy specials. I think that one or two of them are available on Amazon Prime, perhaps maybe Hulu. We had one called Two Man Group, which we recorded. And then there's a, there was another one called Out of the Box. I think that one made There's it a very funny one on there. YouTube with the mousetraps, so... Yes, that's two men. Group. Yeah, yeah, that's that's on there. We retired that game because we're old. <laughs> you don't want to make any more pain than you. And it was, it was, it was <laughs> of all of our games, it was the least improv-y. It just got such a great response from the audience that we liked to end with it. Right. But after you've done it for 10, 20 years, the audiences that are coming to see you seven, eight times, that game feels like identical every single time. Before I let you go, how important are the games versus just improv? It's a mix. So how do you work that out on stage? Well, you know, each game is different. Each game has something that makes it fun or hard or theatrical or scary or compelling for an audience. But what we try to do is we want to use as many games in our show that actually incorporate audience members actively in it, either throughout the game or they're on stage with us, because that truly invests the audience more, I think, overall than a game where you get one suggestion from them and then you kind of run with the scene. It feels more organic if they're constantly pulling the puppet strings on you. How do you keep track of time on stage? Do you get a signal from the booth that, okay, you got guys who have to wind it up now, it's an hour or whatever? Well, the time we, we don't. Our show, we usually take an intermission and with the intermission, our show runs about an hour each act. It's like a legitimate show. Of course, when we're at a casino, they usually say 90 minutes, no intermission. Get out of here. We have people's money to take. Yeah, uh, exactly. You know, so, uh, so that's, that's a different story. But, and so we keep a little more track of the time. And we write our set list for a given night, whether it's a show with an intermission that's our full show, or whether it's a 90-minute show where we have to cut one or two things. And, uh, but we're pretty good about getting out on time. But in our theater show, we run long sometimes because we have a few games that are fun and can go on forever. We have one that's like a cult. It's called Crime. It's an interrogation game where we get this very detailed, protracted crime that's not actually a crime. Like he, you know, kidnapped a Wolverine and <laughs> put it on a unicycle in the middle of Times Square. Uh, and, and, you know, and, and so all these details. And then one of us is interrogating the other who has to confess to the whole details of the crime, getting subtle clues from the detective. So it's like this, you know, with a white light overhead, very film noir kind of thing. And the audience loves that. We get the name of a, a town 
that's like hard to pronounce, maybe a native tribe like Chickamauga you know, and so, so there's all this, you know, mental gymnastics that the two of us have to go through to give clues and understand the clues and guess correctly. And that can take 20 minutes, but it's always really funny. Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Brad Sherwood, who, along with Colin Mockery, will be performing in Scared Scriptless at the Pavilion Theater at Tropicana Laughlin this Saturday, June 25th. For ticket information, go to TropicanaLaughlin.com and for everything about Scared Scriptless, go to ColinAndBradShow.com. And you can follow Brad on Twitter and Instagram at the Brad Sherwood. Brad, thanks for being on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ira. Thank you for having me. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. Happy